<clears throat> you've just played a, a punishing game of mixed netball. <laughs> and you're in the final, and it was close. It was a small margin, one point, but you won. And you feel so amazing. Your body is totally wasted. You've sweated like you've never sweated before, but you feel exhilarated. You pull out your water bottle that keeps it cold for 10 hours. You know those water bottles? I love those ones. You drink a litre of chilled water and you feel great. The game was an after work match and uh, you haven't yet had dinner. So the team thinks, let's go out and have dinner together now for a victory meal. For your mains, you have twice cooked pork belly with an onion and apple velouté using produce from the restaurant's rooftop garden. And for dessert, you have roasted pears with espresso mascarpone cream. The de dessert comes with a coffee of your choice. You order a piccolo. <coughs> they take their coffee seriously in this establishment. In actual fact, on the first Friday of the month, the, uh, the barista Skypes in the farmers from uh, Cuba and you can uh, have a conversation. This is an amazing establishment. Not only do you feel energised because of your exercise, you feel satisfied in your stomach because of your amazing meal. And you feel psychologically at peace because you've had ethical coffee. <laughs> this feels like the good life. And this is much of our lives. In fact, we do it so much. It doesn't feel that special because we did it last Friday as well. It wasn't a victory match, but we still went out anyway. If, if you read through... Uh, the kind of general mainstream literature on uh, uh, well-being, well, you know, the, the living of the kind of natural life. You'll, you'll see this word natural, natural used over and over again. You might have seen it in a doctor's surgery or, or the newsagent. Natural beauty, natural health, natural therapies, natural remedies, natural human connection, natural light natural oils, natural approaches to ecology and spirituality, nutrition, pregnancy, parenting and travel. And all of this, yeah, it comes under a, an umbrella, I think which they call natural living. The, the category, categories which the, the author um, Penelope Hoyt describes as the desire to living um, in closer connection with the earth. Eating organic or whole foods, going to the gym, regularly cycling, running the Melbourne Marathon, having spa retreats, baking gluten-free bread in the morning, all of these health pursuits are woven into the fabric of our culture, natural living. If you think about community spaces like Ceres um, or the Abbot's Convent, they are centres of natural living. Ceres even claims it's actually bringing back the traditions of the Wurundjeri people because and that's, that's desirable because the Wurundjeri people are the ultimately close people to the land in Melbourne. So it's a good thing to do. Their, their mission statement says this series is a place for community-based learning and action to create environmentally beneficial, socially just, economically satisfying, culturally enriching and spiritually nurturing ways of living together. Notice the adjectives. Beneficial, just, satisfying enriching, nurturing. It's for these reasons that we love natural living. We want to pursue those adjectives in our lives. <coughs> now, I'm putting natural living on the table because um, I want us to think about it in terms of ourselves. 
and in terms of our neighbourhood. It seems that we think this is how to live the good life. This is how to be filled up. In the Mary Creek vision, we have a line that says, imagine a church community that nourishes spiritual seekers. You'll see it on the front page of your booklet. The nourishment of spiritual seekers almost sounds like part of the mission statement of series, doesn't it? But what I want to do this morning is put meat on the bones of what that really means for us at Mary Creek, nourishing spiritual seekers. What does it mean for us to be nourished? What does it mean to find fullness? Jesus offers us fullness. What does that mean? What does it mean in light of the promises of natural living that we also pursue? Are they, in fact, in competition? The passage we had from John 6, 25-40, comes at an action-packed time in Jesus' life. Uh, he's prolifically performing miracles. He's just fed the 5,000, one of the most famous miracles in his life, <coughs> comes just under the resurrection, one or two others. Then he does the other famous one, walking on the water, which, um, you know, blew the disciples away as they were rowing across to Capernaum without Jesus in the boat, exhausted. There he is walking across. And when they're halfway across, in the darkness and the wind and the waves, he says, don't worry, it's just me. Amazing. And now the crowd who, who's been interested in Jesus because of what that miracle he did with the bread and loaves and the fish, they're trying to follow him around, so they go across too. He'd start to build a bit of a following. Look at verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? It's like, imagine you would experience Jesus. Uh, you're in the crowd on the shores of Queenscliff, you know, and he told these great stories, and then he multiplied loads and fishes, and you're like, this guy's incredible. Um, and then you saw the disciples go across to Port Sea, um, and you think, Jesus must be going across there too. So you get in your boat, and you go across to Port Sea, which is a bit of a slow, you know, it takes a few hours, and it's rocky on the boat. But you get there, and Jesus is standing on the other side, and he's been there for a few hours just having a latte. You'd be like, you know, they were very surprised. Who is this man who speaks powerful words, they think to themselves, and performs amazing works of power? He's clearly a rabbi, they think, because they call him that. But they have some doubts, and they're about to challenge his teaching. But before they do that, Jesus starts talking and he says, Very truly I tell you, or to put it the way you and I would say it today, uh, stop talking, I've got something really important to say. <laughs> and you'd think he's about to explain how he walked from Queenscliff to Portsea, but he doesn't. What's Jesus going to teach about fullness in a culture of natural living? Here's my first thought from the passage. He's going to say to base our lives on consuming eternal food. Look at verse 26. You were looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Now, let's just get inside the heads of the crowd. They've been attracted to him because they like the idea of a man who can teach well and provide them a great lunch. They're excited about the bread and the fish. If they hang around him, they're going to have 
Um, a personification of Baker's Delight and a fish and chip shop rolled into one. I mean, this is exciting. But the point of the feeding of the 5,000 was not just to fill their guts. So Jesus questions their motives and says, you want me because you think you're going to get more bread. bread. <laughs> That's what you think. This is a reasonable assumption. That this miracle was pointing to a greater truth, wasn't it? He filled their bellies with the loaves and the fishes, but there was a greater food that he was offering, actually. They should have realised that Jesus was the Messiah. That was a greater food. They should have bowed down and submitted their lives to him and said, you are the one who God sent. But they said, oh, this is great. Sourdough, you know. And they hoped, all they hoped for was to work out how to live happily and at ease in this world. And I can understand that, because I want to live happily and at ease in this world. Uh, I've got to be careful, we've got to be careful not to be too critical of the crowd. We would have had exactly the same impulse. As the Gospel of Mark says, even the disciples didn't have a clue. Their hearts were hardened, hardened too. So Jesus tries to get them to see the problem in their thinking. He says in verse 27, Do not work for food that spoils. Or to put it another way, you've come to me, the Son of Man, who God the Father has given the seal of approval, so why, why are you worrying about filling up your stomachs? That's the least of your problems. Talk about Mr. Point. Don't you remember, man cannot live by bread alone? He didn't say that, but he could have. Stop having a materialistic understanding of the kingdom of God is implied in his words. We all fall into this trap. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and we used to watch um, The New Price is Right. Remember that show? And occasionally there would be people who would win the consolation prize, which was a year's supply of Cadbury chocolate or something like that. And I would think, that is the most amazing thing. Imagine having chocolate for a whole year. And this is what he's going to give us. I think as a you know, 12-year-old, I think that's going to give me ultimate satisfaction. It's going to meet my physical needs. I need chocolate. This is going to meet my needs. We want that. We want that as adults. We want leisure. We want health. We want relationships. We want all the good things in life. We want Jesus to give them to us too. People did that then. We do that now. We want Jesus to give us comfort and security. We want Jesus to not only be our insurance policy on life, but our restaurateur and our concierge. We want Jesus to be, provide us a job that is rewarding and exciting and life-transforming. That's not too much to ask, surely. We want Jesus to find us a church that meets all our relationship needs. I mean, doesn't Jesus want me to have a church that meets all my relationship needs? It's the least he could do. Jesus says to the crowd, Sure, I have miraculously produced some bread and some fish yesterday. But even that bread will eventually go stale and be unedible. You should put all your energy into food that does not go off. Food that will lead to eternal life, that will endure into eternal life. I've said this before and I'll say it again. If we're going to be a church that nourishes spiritual seekers, we have to work out how we are nourished first, as if we are Christians. We have to realise that we have a tendency to prioritise the temporary food over the eternal food. 
we think about the aerobics class, great for physical health, but a food that spoils, no eternal significance. Binge watching House of Cards, you know, fun to veg out in the evening and, and you know, great times, but a food that spoils and it will not last into eternity. Going out and seeing a band, a great way to be energised with your friends in front of great musicians, stimulating, but food that spoils, it won't last into eternity. No eternal significance. Weekend away at the holidays. Holiday house. It's so important to relax with your family or with friends. And you know, you know you don't want to work all the time. But it's a food that spoils. No eternal significance. Now hear me correctly, because sometimes when we're listening to sermons, we miss here. Aerobics, TV shows, music, weekends away are not inherently sinful or wrong to do. Obviously, I don't think that. In the same way that Jesus doesn't think bread and fish are wrong. He wouldn't have produced them in a miracle if he did think that. He wouldn't have given it to 5,000 people. Talk about irresponsible if he thought that. And yet he says, God has so much more to offer than bread and fish and aerobics and TV and music and weekends away and art galleries and reading novels and going to the movies. Let's reorder our priorities. That's what we've got to do. So that when we look at the menu of how we're going to be spiritually nourished, we see on one side, you know, imagine your imaginary menu. It says chef's highly, you know, the chef's recommendation very, you know, in big bold, eternal food. This food is going to last into eternal life. And on the other side, it says, chef's warning, nothing terrible about it, but it's temporary food. It's only going to give you a temporary fix. That's the menu. Think about this. If you're about to go to Attica, it's supposed to be the best restaurant in Melbourne, debatable, but let's just say it is. You've been waiting three months because you've had the booking and you've been really looking forward to tasting your delight to the chef. This is what you would not do. You would not think to yourself at about five o'clock before a 6.30 booking, I might have two toasted cheese sandwiches and a big bowl of ice cream and maybe, um, you know, a muffin. You would not do that, would you? Because if you did do that, then once you got to Attica, uh, and the chef put down the first of your 17 courses, there would be no room for it. And the same goes for consuming eternal food. Perhaps we don't let, have any room left for the eternal food because we have filled up on the temporary food. Perhaps you want to consider a cleansing diet. That's what you do in natural living, but let's do it spiritually. Cleanse out some of the temporary food that we consume so we've got room for the eternal food. Natural living, which has temporary benefit, has to come second to eternal living. Base your life on consuming eternal food. Don't base your life on consuming temporary food. My second thought that comes from the passage is this. It is the true bread from heaven that has eternal benefit. So the crowd aren't really getting what Jesus is saying. They keep saying, what must we do? We, what are we going to do? What does God want us to do? What does he require? And they think they have the ability to meet any challenge God puts before them. 
and they have not grasped the concept that eternal life is a gift that can only be given by the Son of Man. Jesus answers in verse 29, What God needs from you is to have faith in the one God has sent. What Jesus is suggesting is so incredible. So they ask him to prove himself. What will you do so that we can trust you? He's just fed the 5,000. He's just walked on water, although only the disciples know that. He's just talked about miraculous food that lasts into eternity. And he's contrasted that with food that spoils. And he is said to have faith in the one God has sent. This is all good stuff, but can he be trusted? If he's going to prove himself, he will need to be more amazing than even Moses, who actually did provide the manna from heaven. Look at verse 30. What sign, this is them talking to Jesus, what sign will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now Jesus seems to think, okay, the conversation has just got a little bit distracted now. We're on the wrong track and uh, we're not focusing on God here. We're focusing on the bread too much. Look at verse 32. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Some Jewish teachers used to call um, the law of Moses bread. So there's lots of symbolism going on here. Jesus has already said the loaves and the fishes, they're not really the true eternal bread. And now he's saying the manna brought down from Moses, that God brought down through Moses, through Moses, is not the true bread from heaven. That's not it. Not even the Torah is the true bread from heaven. But all three of these point to the true bread of heaven. And this brings me to the third idea. Jesus is the true bread from heaven. Only he can provide eternal fullness. Look at verse 35. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Now this is an amazing revelation in the story. It's not that Jesus provides the bread. It's actually that he is the bread. Only Jesus is the one who can provide the fullness that comes from a relationship with God because only Jesus has been in the courtroom of heaven and only he can talk about it with authority. When Jesus said to the crowd to believe in the one whom God has sent, he was referring to himself. That's all God requires, faith in Christ. He is the bread from heaven that will fill you up into eternity. God does not require anything else from you. Although, as we learned last week, when you look to him and believe in him to use the words of Jesus, you will respond in such a way that you will start to perform good works. You will want to offer this eternal bread around to other people. But look at verse 36. There's still a problem. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. There's an issue of unbelief here. On the one hand, they've seen Jesus but they have only seen the great man, the rabbi, the baker's delight and fish and chip shop rolled into one, the miracle worker. They haven't seen the Son of God. They've seen the miracle, not what the miracle signifies. They're interested, but they don't yet have faith. But there is no sense at which Jesus is failing here. It's not like he's the teacher that can't communicate very well. He knows that his Father in heaven will achieve his purposes of salvation to the world. 
Jesus knows because God knows history, past, present and future. Look at verse 37. Jesus says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. It's amazing theology here. The Father and the Son working together to bring about the salvation of the world. The Father gives the gift of the saved people to the Son, and the Son keeps them and holds on to them for eternity. Look at verse 40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This is Jesus' whole purpose. He stepped down from heaven and became human flesh, not to do his own will, but to do the will of the Father. And that will was that the Son should lose none of the individuals who the Father had given him, but raise them up into eternal life on the last day. And so what we're starting to see here is real um, unpacking of this idea of what the fullness is that you get from Jesus, the true bread of heaven. What is it? Is it a feeling that you feel good? That's not a very good answer. This is a better answer. What we get from the passage, he provides the fullness of eternal life. And that's more than just unending existence, which is kind of an abstract idea, very hard to really make sense of. It is primarily the passing over from condemnation into acceptance. It's from death into life. And it's a foretaste that we get now of that that we're going to experience more fully in, in the new heavens and the new earth. Natural living, for all its good stuff that it can do, and in a temporary sense, cannot provide a passing over from condemnation to acceptance. Natural living does not provide a shifting from death to life. It does not provide a, even a crumb of a foretaste of the full banquet of which occurs in the new heavens and the new earth. So you might be thinking, how do I get this? That's what the crowd was thinking. What do I do? That's what the crowd said. And Jesus rebuked them. You can do nothing apart from look to Jesus and believe in Jesus. And this is not only a once-off event. It is the daily life pattern of the Christian disciple. Later in the chapter, Jesus continues the food metaphor. He really builds on it. And he says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, that sounds weird if you hear it on its own, but in the context of him building on the imagery of bread and the miracle of feeding the 5,000, it's not weird. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, then you cannot have eternal life. You have no life in you. And this word eat, it can be even translated as chew, munch on. I love that. I want you munch on Jesus. It's a daily thing. We just continually do it. And this brings me to how do you do it? It's how do you practice it? How do you respond at least to the real fullness that you've already been given? It's through spiritual disciplines. It's through reading the Bible and meditating on it. This is looking to Jesus and believing in him. This is participating in the eternal food. It's prayer. It's speaking to Jesus. This is, this is taking an extra you know, course in the banquet, the eternal restaurant banquet that Jesus is offering. 
It's meditation, it's service, it's submission to others, it's worship, it's generosity. It's You make your life based on that. You prioritise that. You look at all your natural living activities you do in the week and you go, okay, here's one, two, three, four, seven, eight, ten. Let's put the eternal ones at the top and prioritise them first and put the other ones down the list. Now, I don't have time to pack the, unpack how you do all of that now. But on camp, that's the topic. We're looking at... Um, spiritual disciplines in the teaching and you'll get a chance to even practice them. What have I said? I've said prioritise eternal food over temporary food. The bread from heaven is the eternal food and Jesus is the bread from heaven who can only provide fullness and spiritual nourishment into eternity. We've got to know that deep in our guts, live that out and then we can offer that to the the neighbourhood. And base our hope in this. This is where we're heading. I want to f- leave you with this image from Revelation. Picture this in your mind. It says this in chapter 7, Revelation 7. There's a vision that John sees. At the end of time, when Jesus had returned and we are standing with him in eternity, this is what John sees. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, stand before the throne of God and experience the oracle. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. Amen.